0: Hey there, hi there, hello. My name is Britt Allen, and this is The Chain, a podcast about different songs and the things that link them together. We started with The Chain by Fleetwood Mac, which was linked to Killing in the Name by Rage Against the Machine. That in turn linked to Blackbird by the Beatles, skipping forward another seven or so songs, and the most recent link connected Rocky Mountain High by John Denver to Georgia on My Mind by Ray Charles through their respective designations as official state songs of Colorado and Georgia. This episode, we're going to look at the songwriters behind Georgia On My Mind as we link to the next song, In The Chain. Georgia On My Mind was written as an instrumental by American singer, songwriter and actor Hoagy Carmichael in 1930. At the time, Carmichael was a composer on Tin Pan Alley in New York. Two years earlier, he'd written Stardust, which was later recorded by Louis Armstrong, Nat King Cole, John Coltrane, Bing Crosby, Willie Nelson and more. Throughout his career, Carmichael composed several hundred songs, including many hit records. And Georgia On My Mind was one of his earliest successes. Stuart Gorel was Carmichael's housemate. They'd met at Indiana University when Carmichael was a law student and Gorel was studying business, spending many nights together at the Book Nook, a local jazz club. A few years later, after Carmichael had been fired from his first law job and turned to music instead, the two roomed together in New York City. One night, at a party, Carmichael played a piano line that he'd written, and fueled by some borrowed scotch, Gorel began to improvise some lyrics. The two of them stayed up into the early hours of the morning, finishing what would become Georgia On My Mind. However, when Carmichael registered the song with ASCAP, the American Society of Composers, Authors and Publishers, Gorel's name was left off the copyright. Royalties were sent to Carmichael as the sole author of the piece, although he did pass on a share of the profits to Gorel. Now, there are three main payment streams through which songwriters earn royalties. Here's a breakdown from the Nashville Songwriters Association International.
1: Songwriters are paid via three royalty streams. Mechanical royalty. A songwriter receives a mechanical royalty from the sale of a song on an album or a legal digital download. This rate is set by a copyright royalty board made up of three judges who meet every five years to set rates. The original mechanical royalty was established in 1909 and set at two cents. Today, the current rate is 9.1 cents, typically split with co-writers and publishers. Performance royalty. A songwriter receives a performance royalty when their song is performed on terrestrial broadcast radio, in a live performance venue or via online streaming services. In the United States, performance royalties are paid out through performing rights organizations, ASCAP, BMI and CSAC, and are governed by consent decrees from World War II, requiring the PROs to go to rate court to receive their rates from entities seeking to license the songs they represent. Sync fees. A songwriter receives a sync fee when his or her song is licensed for use to synchronize with video, i.e. television, movies or YouTube videos, This royalty is freely negotiated in the marketplace and is typically split 50% to the writers and 50% to the artist and record label. Songwriter royalties are the only income stream in America dictated by the federal government. Songwriters can't increase their mechanical and performance royalty income, even if the cost of doing business increases.
0: But in order to earn any of these royalties, the songwriters need to be credited. And while Stuart Gurrell was not initially credited for the song, Hoagy Carmichael did ensure that he was paid anyway. But not all songwriting disputes are resolved amicably. Many have been taken to court. Ice Ice Baby and Bittersweet Symphony both come to mind. But let's leave that for a future episode. The song we are linking to today is one where the uncredited songwriter has been widely acknowledged, much like Stuart Gurrell but unlike Guerrero, has not received any compensation for their contribution. Meet Rita Coolidge. If you're not familiar with her work, Coolidge is an American recording artist and prolific songwriter, probably best known for her 1983 Bond theme, All Time High from Octopussy. She has also been involved in several high-profile romantic relationships within the music industry. She dated Leon Russell, Joe Cocker, Stephen Stills, who she left for Graham Nash, that was allegedly one of the reasons behind the breakup of Crosby Stills Nash and Young in 1970. Coolidge was married to Chris Christofferson for most of the 70s, and they recorded several albums together. But just before that relationship was the one we're going to talk about today, with Jim Gordon, who was the drummer in Derek and the Dominoes. In her autobiography, Delta Lady A Memoir, which was published by HarperCollins in 2016. Coolidge describes an afternoon in 1970 during which Gordon played her a chord progression that he was working on. Quote, The chords Jim played for me were in the key of C sharp and built to an eight-note refrain before the progression repeated. There was something haunting about it, especially when the bright major chord suddenly dipped to B flat seventh for the refrain. It also seemed deeply familiar, like when you meet someone you're immediately attracted to who seems at once both exotic and approachable. I loved Jim's progression, but at the moment, that's all it was. A stunning riff, not a song. As we played with it, a second progression suddenly came to me, a counter-melody in the key of G that answered and resolved the tension of Jim's chords and built to a dramatic crescendo that bridged the song's beginning and ending. I wrote lyrics that reflected the melody's sense of fatalism and hope. Jim and I ended up calling it Time, Don't Let the World Get in Our Way and taped a demo. We played the song for Eric Clapton when we were in England, touring with Delaney and Bonnie. I remember clearly sitting at the piano at Olympic Studios while Eric listened to me play it all the way through. Jim and I left a tape cassette of the demo with Eric, hoping, of course, that he might cover it. But what happened next was unexpected. Here's Coolidge on Good Day LA with Steve Edwards. Uh,
2: I was in the studio having photographs made for my new album on a and Records, and the- Layla came over the speakers. I hadn't heard it before, it was just recent released. And I heard it over the speakers and suddenly, the veins kind of started popping out in my neck. There were photographs from the photographer of my rage. Really? (laughs) I said, that's my music, that's my music. I wrote that song, I wrote that. And immediately began what I thought were the steps to be taken to find out, you know, Am I, I, I given writers credit because nobody had told me that it was being recorded, and I talked to Eric's manager, Robert Stigwood, and he who, who was a powerful, famous guy. Very powerful. Guy. Uh, so powerful. Who, he was,
1: Who said to you? Said to you. He
2: said to me. He said, "What are you going to do? You're a girl singer. You're going to go up against Stiggy." The Stigwood organization. And yeah. he called himself Stiggy. you are uh-huh. going to go up against Stiggy. You don't have a chance. And and in that moment, I realized that I didn't have a chance, Steve. But I have, since that time, I have told the story over and over and over again. So I'm sure that it will not be the first time that Eric's camp has heard this story. Because right. I've told it since... It happened, what not for that? any other reason except that, as a writer, you kind of want to get credit. You for, weren't even looking for, the for money. Is it the money? It? No, it's no. not about the money. It's just about and, the honesty. And Jim uh, honesty. Gordon, the great, uh, benighted drummer, uh, who was your guy at one point, uh, he's got the credit. Uh, Eric's got the credit. You got nothing, except to talk about it, right? I've got a good story, don't I?
0: And it's a story corroborated by many others, including Derek and the Domino's keyboardist Bobby Whitlock. In an interview with Eric Clapton fan site Where's Eric? in 2011, Whitlock said of Layla, quote, Jim took that piano melody from his ex-girlfriend Rita Coolidge. I know because in the Delaney and Bonnie days, I lived in John Garfield's old house in the Hollywood Hills, and there was a guest house with an upright piano in it. Rita and Jim were up there in the guest house and invited me to join in on writing this song with them called Time. Her sister Priscilla wound up recording it with her husband, Booker T. Jones. Jim took the melody from Rita's song and didn't give her credit for writing it. Her boyfriend ripped her off. Graham Nash also supported the claim in his 2014 autobiography Wild Tales, saying, quote, In fact, she wrote the famous coda, the piano bit, to the end of Layla. Jimmy Gordon got the credit for it, but it was actually all readers. It's worth noting that both of these citations were published before Coolidge's autobiography. The authorship of Layla was an open secret within that community. Next time on The Chain, we'll take a look at what happened when Eric Clapton played Layla on MTV Unplugged, as we link it to the next song. In the meantime, you can find more from The Chain at thechainpod.com and at The Chain pod on Twitter and Instagram. And before I go, I just want to give a shout out to those of you who've left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. Those reviews help other people find us, and they make me feel all warm and fuzzy too. My name's Britt Allen, and I will catch you next time here on The Chain.